The reading is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12, and can be found on page 986 in the Bibles. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, is it better not to marry? And Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs, because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. Um, I'm just going to concentrate on this particular passage. I am going to add in the Corinthians passage, which just to give a kind of more complete picture of what the New Testament's teaching is. But um, that has to be understood within a much wider context. That as a church, we have the marriage course for those who are thinking of getting married, for those who are married. And um, we also have... um, at the end of April, beginning of May, we have Divorce Recovery Workshop. Both of those courses kind of have helped thousands of people. Um, Probably, certainly the DRW one, in the many hundreds, and the marriage course, which is more recent, probably approaching a hundred. And most of the people are not congregation members. So it is something you could signpost any friends to who you think might find those things helpful. Well, the the way to find out about marriage is first and foremost to understand what Jesus, God himself, who invented it, taught about it. And we read here that some of the Pharisees came to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So the Pharisees are starting with the question of divorce 
as to, and to whether it's permissible or not, and if it is permissible, on what grounds. And that was a matter of dispute amongst the Jewish rabbis of the first century. But Jesus chooses to answer the question by first of all talking about marriage. Who is it for and what is it for? And then he tackles the question of divorce. And then finally he addresses the surprise, possible cynicism, of the disciples who are still learning. So first of all, who is marriage for? And the answer is male and female. That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. He's quoting from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, in the days before the fall in chapter 3, when everything started to go wrong. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And there are three things that I think are well worth noting about this. First of all, men and women are different. That difference is essentially biological, as is obvious. Although the way that difference gets played out will vary from different times and in different cultures. So in the Orient, women have long worn trousers, whereas in the Sudan, men have long worn something akin to a long skirt. This has got nothing to do with sex or gender. It's just what is available in that geographical location and what is fitting for that particular climate. Male and female together make up man in the image of God. To be human, therefore, is to share humanity with the opposite sex, not the same sex. Your sex is essential to who you are. You are either a human male or a human female. You either have XX chromosomes or you have XY chromosomes. If you're very unfortunate, you might have chromosome abnormality, um, but that is statistically incredibly rare. So that would seem to be basic and obvious. So I don't know what the shadow minister for women and equalities, Dawn Butler, was thinking when she said, apparently, on uh, Good Morning Britain two weeks ago, that a child is born without sex. Now, you could take that two ways, but the way, either way, you wonder what she means, um, but the way in which she probably intended it isn't right, is it? I mean, biologically, that is just inaccurate. And that's because I think so much of our contemporary thinking, which is not novel, goes back to ancient thinking. The Christian, the biblical understanding is so different from the Greek myth of an original hominid that after its creation was then divided into two, a male half and a female half. And you can see that there's a distinction. The sexes in the Greek thought are subsequent to creation. They are not part of the original creation and are not fundamental. Sexual difference in this Greek myth is simply a secondary matter, a matter of plumbing, so to speak. 
The Bible's account of creation, however, says that sexual difference is fundamental. So perhaps you can see how today's radical feminism, or the gay insurgency, as it's now called, or transsexualism, follow that Greek way of thinking. The Bible, and what is obvious in biology, says that the Greek myth is wrong. Essentially, we are created differently rather than constructed differently. Second point is that men and women are equal, equal in status before God, both made in his image, both uh, are stewards of his creation, and both are co-creators of human beings who have the potential to have a personal relationship with God, their creator. Without us, God can have no people who he's related to. And of course, both men and women are equally heirs of eternal life. And thirdly, men and women are complementary to one another. Equal status, but different function. At its basic, fathering and mothering. After the fall, though, things have hopelessly gone wrong. There has been male chauvinism. And so, supposedly in history, some pretty crass remarks have been made and ways of lived. So the Greek philosopher Aristotle, he came out with, the female is a kind of mutilated male, accidentally produced by the father's inadequacy or, an alternative, the malign influence of a moist south wind. That is the great, the great, in inverted commas, Greek philosopher Aristotle. And quite rightly, in the last century, feminists have fought back, like the rather sad Germaine Greer, who writes, women should not enter into socially sanctioned relationships like marriage, and that once unhappily in, they ought not to scruple to run away. So contrasting views. Neither very happy views. Neither views which actually work out in practice terribly well. But how are men and women to relate in marriage? Well, listen to this. It's how a feminist came through experience to what Christians might call loving responsibility or biblical headship, a complementarity of marriage. He writes, but his wife also shares the same view and tread, trod the same journey. I do not for a moment believe that men are superior to women, only different. To me, one of the God-given joys of this life is the radiant, forever intriguing, complementary difference of man and woman, not just superficially sexual, but deep and awesome. Man and woman are equal, yes, but equal in importance and value, and not, thank God, identical. Equal in importance as a nut and bolt are entirely equal in importance without being identical and doing a job together that neither two bolts nor two nuts could do, holding something together. They're the words of Sheldon Vanukin, 
who was a famous uh, feminist. Writing in the late 60s, he invented the words sexist and sexism. But in 1984, he wrote an essay entitled Second Thoughts on Women's Liberation. He had changed his mind. This was after his wife, also a strong feminist, had changed her mind near the end of her life as she read the writings of the Apostle Paul. After her death, he came to realise that, and I quote, I had exercised a sort of headship in the sense of the initiatory or leadership role that was accepted, even desired by her, without either of us being aware of it. Such headship is, of course, not being a boss, which is the debasing of headship, as clinging vinism is the debasing of wifely response, but it is initiating and leading. I concluded that its existence left me wondering whether, despite all feminist denial, such a relationship were not inbuilt in creation and effectively denied only at heavy cost to love. Our model for marriage is actually Christ's relationship to us, the church, and through marriage, we also gain greater insight to appreciate the divine human relationship. As Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is head of the wife. And we're talking having her best interests at heart, loving sacrificial leadership. We're talking gentlemen. We're talking strength with kindness. What is marriage? Our second question. For this reason, Jesus says, and he's quoting from Genesis 2.24, in other words, he's endorsing what God's ideal was before anything went wrong in chapter 2 of Genesis, and it went wrong in chapter 3. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, let's unpack it and try and apply it. A man will leave his father and mother. We know, because I've mentioned it a few times, I think, that weddings in Church of England churches have to take place between the hours of 8am and 6pm. So if you turn up, if you've got a wedding book for 5pm and you turn up an hour late can't marry you. And that's because marriage is meant to be a public event. The community is meant to have the opportunity. And whether you like it or not, anybody can turn up to your wedding. They can turn up to church. They have open access to it. Of course, they don't have a right to turn up to your reception, but they can turn up to the service because marriage is a public event in where society is seeing a new social unit created. And they are to witness it. Before we're married, our primary relationship is to our parents. On our wedding day, in a formal sense, our primary human relationship is transferred to our spouse. They become the most important relationship in our life. Parents have to let go and hand over, carrying on loving and supporting, but not interfering. 
It's also telling the rest of the community that X and Y are no longer on the marriage market. And so similarly, others are not to intrude upon that relationship. In fact, society should do all that it can to foster their married life together because it will provide stability and the best role models on average for the next generation to be brought up. Incidentally, notice that this is that this definition of marriage is of a man and his wife, that is, a woman. So think what it excludes. It rules out polygamy, one man and many wives, not to mention many mother-in-laws, should the idea have any momentary appeal to you. It also rules out polyandry, one woman with many husbands, which has apparently rarely existed um, in history. But I can't imagine that too many of you women have that fantasy in mind. It also rules out homosexuality and lesbianism because it is a relationship between a man and a female. It is a heterosexual relationship. It's a monogamous heterosexual relationship. Then we read, be united to his wife. In the authorised version of the Bible and in the old prayer book service for marriage, you have the word cleave here, which rhymes nicely with leave, cleave, become one flesh. But cleaveism, in, in, if you go back into the original Hebrew, it is the word for glue. So in the nicest possible way, this means that a couple are stuck with each other. So not only is marriage meant to be an exclusive, monogamous, heterosexual relationship, it also is meant to be a permanent one. The state of the relationship will naturally have its ups and downs, good and bad, better times and worse times. But with that commitment to marriage and accountability to Christ, relationships can always improve if both partners will it too. So leave, cleave, and become one flesh. There is a unique physical expression for a unique social and spiritual relationship. Sexual intercourse enables the physical expression of that union, which means, of course, that if you engage in premarital sexual intercourse, then you have nothing left of a unique nature to express a unique relationship. The point is, sex is not merely a bodily appetite or a recreational activity. It's a profoundly relational thing. It is designed to signify and cement the union of marriage. Here, Mike Mason, in a book called The Mystery of Marriage, writes... To be naked with another person is a symbolic demonstration of perfect honesty, perfect trust, perfect giving and commitment. And if the heart is not naked along with the body, then the whole action becomes a lie. The giving of the body but the withholding of the self. Exposure of the body is like the telling of one's deepest secrets. Afterwards, there is no going back. 
no pretending that the secret is still one's own. It is, in effect, the very last step in human relations and therefore never to be taken lightly. It is not a step which establishes deep intimacy, but which presupposes it. So, marriage as God, our creator, intended is to be between a man and a woman who are equal in status but different in function, complementing one another. Such a unique relationship has a unique sexual expression and and the intended outcome is children who too can relate to God himself. Well, then we look, thirdly, at the question that the Pharisees started off with. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, divorce at that time and remarriage in the Greco-Roman world were not uncommon. If uh, you think about the history of the last, say, 2,000 years, there have been times in different societies and civilizations in the world where um, things have been very lax, like it was in the Greco-Roman world, particularly once you get into Anno Domini. And at other times, societies have realised the importance of stability for um, order in society and for the best way to bring up the next generation. And it has become more, if you like, strict and committed and less laissez-faire. But in the Greco-Roman world, it was largely laissez-faire. Sexual relationships outside of marriage were considered natural and normal. Written or oral notice in the presence of two witnesses was all that was required to end it. But in Judaism, things were different. A man could divorce his wife, but the woman had no such right to divorce her husband. All he had to do was to present her with a note in the presence of two witnesses saying, in effect, that's it, the marriage is over. As to the grounds for divorce, there was a debate revolving around how you understood a little phrase in Deuteronomy 24, which allows divorce when a husband finds, quote, something indecent about his wife. Now, the followers of Rabbi Shammai took the strict line, something indecent meant some sexual offence. The followers of Rabbi Hillel took a very permissive line, the husband could divorce his wife for any and every reason. Hence the question that the Pharisees ask here. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Some of the reasons given in rabbinical literature um, include gossiping in the street, losing her looks, having an unsightly mole, and putting too much salt in the soup. Well, yeah, rough in those days. That was pretty appalling male chauvinism. The Pharisees, though, want to know what Jesus thinks about divorce and remarriage. And Jesus defines marriage, as we've seen, for this reason. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one, and therefore what God has joined together, 
let not man separate. But then the Pharisees come back to him in verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, if you uh, know Deuteronomy 24, you know that they have just misquoted it. And uh, we know that um, in Matthew 5.31, where Jesus says it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, read like this, then divorce is easily available to any discontented husband. But in Deuteronomy 24, the context is quite different. The Mosaic legislation was designed to protect the wife and to restrict remarriage by not allowing the husband to divorce his wife and then remarry her if the second marriage didn't work out. That would have enabled him to have various legalized flings. In other words, if he divorced his wife, it had to be permanent. But Jesus points out here that the Israelites were never commanded to divorce their wives. It was a concession, Jesus says. He permitted it. It was permitted because their hearts were hard. But Jesus says it was not that way from the beginning. It was not God's intention that that should be the case. Now, because marriages sometimes fail and divorce was sometimes the way to deal with the situation, it doesn't alter the fact that God still says in Malachi that he hates divorce. Not surprisingly, because it is a departure from his ideal, from the very best for human beings. So... With this foundation, Jesus goes on to say that divorce is equivalent to adultery with one exception. That's divorce and remarriage is equivalent to adultery with one exception, over which there has been much debate. It is the phrase, except for marital unfaithfulness. And a lot hinges on this word marital unfaithfulness. In the original Greek, it is the word porneia, from which we get, of course, our word pornography. Now, some understand porneia to mean not adultery, but a discovery um, on the marriage uh, day that the partner has had sex before marriage. And they argue that if they had wanted to specify adultery, they would have used another word, moikia, which only meant adultery. Those who take that view are called indissolublists because they say that you can never dissolve a marriage. Others point out that porneia, when used in Greek literature, does include adultery. In fact, it's a much more general term which refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. And the Protestant reformers, who were usually good students of the Bible, took this line and recognised that for adultery it was possible to divorce one's partner. In the Old Testament, the penalty, as you may well know, for adultery was death. But under Roman rule, of course, it could not be enforced. In fact, for many years, fines had taken the place of the death penalty in the cases of adultery and many other wrongs. 
Adultery meant a new union had been formed and therefore divorce would recognise that the marriage had already been terminated. So Jesus is affirming the permanence of marriage with this one exception. Not that the faithful partner has to divorce the unfaithful one, but they may do so if the unfaithful partner won't return and be reconciled. Now, of course, the question arises, which we don't have it, well, if they did raise it, it's not recorded. Was it just for adultery that someone could divorce their unfaithful partner? Well, the issue only crops up in one other place place other than the Gospels, and that is in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 12 to 16. It's on page 1148. You might like to turn to it so we can just briefly cover it. 1148, 1 Corinthians 7. Of course, this is probably written 20 years after Jesus was speaking in the Gospels, when, of course, uh, the, the Gospel had been taken to Gentile lands where things were much more permissive, and where, of course, you will have the situation where one person, a man, a husband or a wife, becomes a Christian. And then, a, some, then of course, difficulties might arise. And we read how it is addressed by the Apostle Paul. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So he raises the question of somebody who is a believer um, and is married to an unbeliever. They probably they were married when they were unbelievers, but one of them has adopted the Christian faith. And that was probably a very common problem there in that first generation of Christians. Many a situation would have arisen where one partner gets converted. What are they to do then? Well, Paul says that if the unbelieving partner is willing to live with them, then they shouldn't uh, divorce them. You never know. You may well, by the example of your life and by the explanation of the gospel, enable them to embrace the faith too. But if someone is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves them, then he says they are not bound in such circumstances, verse 15. So taking those two, what Jesus says in the Gospel and what Paul says in his letter, we realise that divorce is regrettable but allowable. The principle of one flesh is jeopardised by adultery and the principle of being equally yoked is jeopardised by unbelief. Now the question that uh, we might ask, but they are not recorded as doing so, is this one. 
Is divorce and remarriage only possible on the grounds of adultery and or desertion by an unbeliever? Well, we need to tread very carefully because we're entering an area of silence here. There doesn't appear to be a specific part of the Bible that we can turn to for help at this particular point. So what we are considering would be deductions from general principles. And it's in this area that Christians are likely to quite easily disagree in how some of those principles are worked out in practice. However, it's very likely in most of these situations that adultery and or desertion will sooner or later also become factors and therefore make things clearer for us. However, if they're not, then it may be in extreme circumstances that divorce is the only way out. So Jesus, while not forbidding all divorce and remarriage, comes closer to the stricter rabbinic school of Shammai on the grounds for exceptions, while taking a more conservative stance than Shammai on who may remarry. It's important to note that in the New Testament, they always assume that divorce will be followed by remarriage. Jesus, for example, says of the man who divorces his wife except for adultery, that he makes her an adulteress by doing so because he knows they will automatically marry somebody else, even though, from his perspective, they shouldn't. Then finally, we have a question from the uh, disciples, who, remember, are on a learning process. You know, they are people of that culture. Who knows whether they inclined towards Shammai or towards Hillel, whether they were stricter or whether they were more permissive judging by the diversity amongst the 12 disciples, they probably had both sorts following Jesus. And they ask, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Of course, that view is predicated on a very permissive divorce and remarriage laws. They sort of think, gosh, I can't just kind of, you know, trade in or trade up or whatever they might be thinking. It's a dreadful view to have as a basis for understanding human marital relationships. And Don Carson, his commentary, points out that it is a stance that fails miserably to understand what Jesus has said about the creation ordinance of marriage. It was an overreaction of theirs to what they perceived as being the strictness of Jesus' teaching. And it's also been a trait of certain kind of traditions in Christianity ever since, which elevate celibacy and downplay marriage. Jesus' reply about whether it might be better never to marry at all Verse 11, not everyone can accept this word or teaching, but only those to to whom it's been given. He is answering their question. For some are eunuchs because they are born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In effect, what Jesus is saying is that it's okay to be celibate if you can handle it if that's your gifting. 
but he was well aware that for the vast majority of people, marriage was meant to be the good thing and the relationship that they engaged in. So in summary, God's ideal is that a man and a woman should have an exclusive, lifelong relationship. Second, but in this fallen world, divorce, whilst never commanded nor encouraged, is even where justified a sad departure from God's best for human beings. And thirdly, divorce and remarriage are permissible, but if we are in that situation, we don't have to remarry. We could stay single. That would certainly be the Apostle Paul's advice. The situations where it is clear from the Bible that somebody could divorce and remarry are where they are the innocent party to adultery or desertion. But we don't really want to go there because we know that route, marriage breakup, causes so much grief not only for the couple involved, but also for children, for relatives, and for the whole stability and well-being of society. It is better, as Jesus taught, that what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that... Uh, Although you don't answer every question we might like to have an answer to, you are very clear on what marriage is. And uh, we pray that we would have the wisdom to uh, follow you, not to try and be wise in our own minds, but to follow you. We recognise that just as uh, civilizations rise and fall, and how um, one generation thinks they're doing a good thing, only to discover that it's a disaster and the others learn from that mistake. So we recognise that that is true in our personal lives as well. We pray that if uh, we're married and uh, we may avail ourselves of things like the marriage course, if we're somebody who has gone through the grief of uh, divorce and the pain, we pray that we might avail ourselves of the divorce recovery workshop at the end of April. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would all be um, good advocates of marriage. We pray that our marriages might be good examples for the benefit of others involved and for the greater benefit of society. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you also are also the God who uh, recognises that we make mistakes who gives people a second chance and gives people the grace and the strength to follow the wisdom that they may once have not practiced or experienced. And we pray for your presence and strength with them. Amen.